a blessing of that over the last few years is uh, we spend a lot of time praying together. And one of the things that struck me over time as I've attended these meetings is the difference in prayer depending on how often or how long folks have been in ministry. When guys like Aaron and I pray, we're usually praying for uh, events we have going on or uh, tasks we're trying to do, things like that. And guys like Marty uh, or West Pastor are praying for endurance to finish faithfully. And that struck me a lot over the last few months as I just finished up my MDiv and have been considering going into ministry and what that's going to look like for me and my family is endurance, finishing the fight faithfully. And so that's why I selected this passage this morning to preach. We're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. So I believe in the Pew Bibles, I think that's 1180, 81, somewhere around there. But 2 Timothy chapter 2, 1 through 13. Hear what the Apostle Paul has to say here to his beloved child, Timothy. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust to faithful men, who will be able to teach others also. Share in sufferings as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And if we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. A word which Paul reminds us this morning is unbound. Lord, we all come here this morning weak and weary, and we ask that your word today would strengthen us in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Lord, I want to lift up Aaron to you as he is enjoying time away. I pray that he would come back strengthened and refreshed. But Lord, I ask this morning that your spirit would work through your word amongst your people. We just pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Any wrestlers in here? This is always... It's not too many people wrestle. It's a very hard sport, and I would say it really captures the picture of endurance well. So I wrestled all through high school uh, and kind of the first few years of college. 
And uh, I still remember vividly one of my biggest losses when I was in high school. It's a district uh, tournament that we were doing. It was the finals. It was kind of the first time I had made it to the finals at kind of such a high level and was feeling really great. But the guy I was going up against uh, just was a tank. And we go into double overtime, so if anyone knows any rules of wrestling, you go two-minute periods, and then overtime is an additional two-minute periods. And so we're talking 10 minutes of just full contact wrestling. And I ended up losing because I got a penalty, which is called stalling, which is where I essentially just got gassed. I was tired. And so I kept backing away. I'm like, I can't, I don't want him to touch me. I'm too tired. And so I ended up losing because I didn't have the endurance to finish the fight. And that stuck with me for a long time. You know, as you're a high schooler, you want to do well in that kind of stuff. But this morning, our passage here is all about the endurance to finish strong. What it means to be strengthened in the Christian life. So just like then, I didn't have the endurance. But the difference is, we can be strengthened by someone else. I had to put in the work when I was in high school. I couldn't have somebody else lift weights for me or run laps. But so we're going to find this morning the source of our strength in the Christian life is much different than that of any sort of exercise routine. What we're going to see, I think Paul's main point for us this morning, is the key to Christian endurance is to be strengthened by the memory of Jesus Christ even amidst our sufferings. And that's where Paul begins, looking at my outline that uh, is in the bulletin here. He begins with the power that's needed for Christian endurance. He says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Like a father speaking to his son, he urges Timothy, my child, be strengthened. Notice the passive language there. Be strengthened. He doesn't say, strengthen yourself. He says, be strengthened. Specifically, by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Not by doing some push-ups or starting a new exercise routine. Ever since I finished seminary, I started kind of going into a more regular exercise routine. My only goal with that is to be able to dominate Ezra in every athletic endeavor as long as possible. But the goal for our strengthening in the Christian life is much deeper than that. And this is the first critical step for us to endure in the Christian life. We are strengthened not through CrossFit, but through the cross of Christ. And this strengthening is really framing the whole passage. The whole passage is about the strength, the power needed to endure, to finish faithfully. And it comes through the grace of Jesus Christ, not by our own merits or our own work, but through a source outside of ourselves. But what do we do with that strength that was being given us? Paul moves from the power of Christian endurance to the priorities that come with Christian endurance. It's strength to propagate, to grow. He says, and what you have heard from me about the grace in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Timothy 
must trust and trust to faithful men what he had heard from Paul. And Paul uses this verb entrust earlier in the level in the uh, in the letter when he refers to what God has entrusted to him, and then again when he commands Timothy to guard the good deposit, the gospel that has been entrusted to you. So what Timothy is supposed to entrust to faithful men is Paul's gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the apostolic message of his life and death and resurrection and reign. But why does Paul make such a big deal about entrusting this to faithful men? Why is this so important for our endurance as Christians? Well, if you read 2 Timothy closely, you'll see that it's peppered with names. There's lots of names and references to men throughout the letter. And the majority of them are those who have abandoned Paul and betrayed him. There's Phygelus and Hermogenes, who Paul says deserted him when he was in Asia. There's Hymenaeus and Philetus, who he says swerved from the truth. There's Demas, he says, who loved the world so much that he deserted Paul while they were on mission together. And then there's a man by, Al- by the name of Alexander the coppersmith, who Paul says did great harm to him and warns Timothy to stay away from him. But Paul doesn't have only bad names throughout the letter. He also speaks of faithful men and not just faithless cowards. Look back at verse 16, right before our passage this morning. He says, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. It's quite the contrast between Onesiphorus and the others. And that is what Paul is getting at here when he is talking to Timothy and telling him to entrust the gospel message to faithful men. He's saying, entrust the gospel to men like Onesiphorus, men who are not ashamed of Paul or his chains, men who will endure, men who will entrust the gospel to other faithful men. And that continues to today. We continue to need to entrust the gospel to faithful men and faithful women. Not just those who are gifted or charismatic. We've seen that in the, in the public eye with the church. Men who are gifted, well-speaking, but fall away as soon as difficulties arise. No, Paul points us here to four generations of faithfulness. Paul, who entrusts to Timothy, Timothy entrusts to faithful men, and those faithful men who will teach to others. I think that's, in just talking with Aaron, a priority here in this church. Raising up godly elders, teaching others to teach others, to remain faithful in the gospel. And this is how the church is to grow, through the faithful proclamation of the gospel from generation to generation. However, Paul's next pair of imperatives that he presents to us make it clear that the life of faithfulness is not one of ease. He urges Timothy, share in suffering. 
And then he gives us three pictures of what Christian endurance looks like when we share in suffering. But what does Paul mean by that? Share in suffering. It's actually a single word in the Greek, and it only appears here in 2 Timothy. Here and in uh, chapter 1, verse 8, where he says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. It's a command. It means suffer with me. Paul is imploring Timothy, share in my sufferings. Suffer alongside me. And it's clear from the letter that Paul is alone, an old man in his last days. If anybody knows any of the background of 2 Timothy, we know this is Paul's final letter before he is executed. Abandoned by his former brothers in arms, So what's important here for him? Well, Samuel Johnson, a famous English playwright, says that you can depend on it when a man knows he's to be hanged in a fortnight, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. And so here, Paul, with all the concentration that you can have, writes to Timothy and says, suffer with me, share in my suffering, brother. He says, unlike the dereliction of duty that we see with these other men, like Phygelus and Hermogenes, who go AWOL and abandon their post in Asia, he says, Timothy, be a good soldier. Faithfully suffer alongside me. And now we might read this and be tempted to think, well, of course, Paul suffered a lot because he was called to suffer. He was an apostle. He's paid for this, as if this sort of suffering is somehow unique to the professionals in the church. But according to Paul later in chapter 3, he says this, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Do you desire to live a godly life? Do you desire to live a life that would honor Jesus Christ in the way you live? Well, Paul tells us without mixing any words that to be a Christian is to endure suffering. I'm always a bit hesitant, though, to use the word persecution. As Christians in the West, we do not endure the same kinds of trials and tribulations that our brothers and sisters do throughout the globe, where the mere act of gathering together on a Sunday to worship is to put your life at risk. We do get to enjoy a tremendous amount of freedom uh, and liberty here in the United States, and for that we should give praise to God. However, we can't bury our heads into the sand and assume that we are free of any sort of suffering. It is indeed starting to cost more and more to be a Christian in America. Don Carson, in his book, How Long, O Lord?, which is a kind of a reflection on suffering and evil, puts it this way. He says, The object of the Christian faith is a crucified Messiah, and he has set the pattern for all of his followers. Further, he has already inaugurated or brought about the kingdom of God, and this kingdom actually engenders a clash of loyalties wherever any institution or authority, home, Government, job, 
popular philosophy intolerantly claims allegiance that belongs to God alone. Suffering the opprobrium, which is just a fancy Don Carson way of saying disgrace, suffering the disgrace of the world is bound up with what it means to be a Christian. There are an ever-increasing number of subtle pressures that we face today, day to day, be they in business or public service, sports, entertainment, the workplace, social norms that challenge us to bend the knee to somebody other than Christ. But we can't. I think most immediately, I know it's just affected uh, so many in our church, and I know as well here, the situation with Mid-Vermont and everything that's gone on there, being told to bend the knee if you want to compete. And I'm so thankful for those who are in leadership there saying, no, we won't. What a tremendous testimony of loyalty to the gospel. When the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of Christ clash, our loyalties will be made manifest. Perhaps you feel this very pressure in your life right now. Those at work who try to get you to do things, say things, believe things that simply do not align with the gospel of Christ. Well, I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, stay the course. Remain faithful because Paul has implored us to share in his suffering. But to bring this point home, Paul doesn't just tell us, he shows us. He paints three pictures of Christian endurance. A soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. Each of these presents an illustration of what Christian endurance is to look like. First, we see the soldier in verse 4. With single-minded devotion, he seeks to please his commanding officer. And then next, the athlete, who with focused discipline, competes according to the rules so that he can win a crown. And then finally, the farmer, who with hard work and grit labors for a crop. Each of these present key characteristics of what Christian endurance is, looks like. First, let's look at the soldier. Single-minded and undistracted service. The soldier can't afford to get sidetracked by civilian affairs. If he wants to please his commanding officer during times of warfare, he needs to stay focused and on mission. Likewise, for us, the life of a Christian is one of active duty. It's a constant spiritual battle and half-hearted devotion to our commanding officer, Christ, is not enough to win the fight. And Paul urges Timothy and us, therefore, to stay on mission. We can't be distracted by the non-essentials. Further prove it, he points to the athlete. Paul says that the athlete cannot compete unless he competes according to the rules. Today is Super Bowl Sunday. I don't know if any of you knew this. It's a pretty big deal, I hear. We got the Chiefs and the 49ers going to be facing off tonight. 
We've got Patrick Mahomes, this up-and-coming legend of a quarterback, and then you've got Brock Purdy, the new hotshot. Now, if Patrick Mahomes got out there on the field with a crowbar and just start whacking at the kneecaps of Brock Purdy and the 49ers secondary, are you thinking he's going to walk away with that Lombardi trophy? No, right? That would be nonsense. He's broken all the rules and a couple laws when he does that. Likewise, for us as Christians, we have rules that we must follow if we were to compete for the crown. We can't compete if we decide that, you know, I don't want to love my brothers and sisters. I actually want to hate them. You know, I don't want to commit to loving one wife. I actually want multiple. I don't want to deal with my bitterness and anger. I want to just dwell in it. Jesus himself makes that clear in John 14. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him. And he will, he will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. To endure as a Christian, we must follow the commandments of Christ. There was a book that came out a few years back that essentially showed that when we see all these tales of deconstruction, those that walk away from the church, it's never the case where there was disbelief that led to sin, which led to walking away. It's always the other way around. It's sin that is just never taken care of that leads to a disbelief and a deconstruction and a walking away from the faith. There are no house rules for the Christian. We don't get to decide what is good and what is evil. We have the law of Christ, a law which is called a law of liberty. It's good for us. It frees us. It strengthens us. But finally, we have the picture of the farmer. While the soldier and the athlete are often decorated for their feats and accomplishments, the farmer is a far less glamorous picture of endurance. I always think, I always, every, every time I see Pastor Aaron's Instagram posts of him dealing with goats and all these different animals, and just like that, is a man who understands the less than glamorous life of a farmer. The, Paul, the word Paul uses here for labor has a very specific meaning. He often uses it in the context of ministry, but it's obviously used for the gritty hard work that comes with farming. But the whole point is that the Christian life and ministry are arduous. It requires hard work. We don't really get days off. And I'm sure we could all agree on this. Here in the Upper Valley, ministry is often painfully slow. It's not like when you're down in the Midwest or the South and you just open up a strip mall church and people will start coming. It requires a painful plotting. It takes time, day in and day out. Faithfulness in little things 
But when we go back and look at each of these images, the soldier, the athlete, the farmer, each of these pictures, we also see that in them is buried the image of the very purpose for Christian endurance. Paul makes this clear when he says, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. He's saying, look at the pictures. There's more to them than meets the eye. It's not all just work. There's a reward. The soldier pleases his commanding officer. That's his reward. The athlete competes to win a crown. That's his reward. And the farmer labors for a crop. That is his reward. The point here is that when we endure suffering, when we endure in this life, there's a promise of a reward for those who are faithful. But what is that reward? What is that reward for us? Well, Paul gives us that in verse 8 when he gives us now the motivation for Christian endurance. He says that the motivation for us is Jesus Christ. The commanding officer were to plead is the reigning King Jesus, whom we serve with single-minded devotion. The crown for which we are competing is the very crown of life presented to those of us who live with integrity according to the commandments of the risen Lord Jesus. The crop which we toil for is the bountiful harvest of souls joining in the heavenly chorus through the faithful proclamation of the gospel. This is what motivates Christian endurance. It's what's motivating Paul and what he uses to motivate Timothy. He writes, remember Jesus Christ. That's the whole sermon right there. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel. And so what is it that Paul pleads for Timothy to remember about Jesus? Well, he gives two main points. He says to remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, and remember Jesus Christ, descended from David. But why these two things specifically, you might wonder. There's so much that Paul could have said about Jesus. So why just these two things? Well, I think these are specific to Paul's main aim to strengthen Timothy in faithful endurance and suffering for the gospel. Look with me. He first he reminds Timothy of Christ's resurrection. The resurrection is the very cornerstone of our hope in life. Paul even says so himself in 1 Corinthians. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. If this life was all Timothy had, why would he try to endure suffering at all, especially to the degree that Paul does? Why would any of us want to follow in Paul's footsteps? And this is why Paul reminds Timothy and us that Jesus Christ isn't dead. He is risen from the dead, but he doesn't stop there. He's not only risen from the dead, he also reminds him that 
Jesus Christ is reigning. He says, Jesus Christ, the offspring of David. This phrase, the offspring of David, is just loaded with theological weightiness. There's so much to this. But I'll boil it down to this. Paul is saying that Jesus is the heir to the glorious promises that God made to David in the Old Testament. Specifically, this is what he has in view. The Lord promises to, to David regarding his descendant, his offspring, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And Christ is that descendant. As David's messianic heir, Christ is now, at this very moment, seated on his heavenly throne, reigning over all of creation. And that reign has no end. It's an eternal kingdom, a rule without end that will go on for eternity. What more motivation could one have to endure anything in this life? As one commentator puts it, I love this, the memory of Christ, cloaked with resurrection power and messianic dignity, is an inspiration for Christian service. Such a powerful savior can, stim can stimulate a timid disciple such as Timothy to new vigor and hope. And that same inspiration holds true for us today. We can look and remember Jesus Christ, risen, reigning, ruling over all things, even in the midst of our own trials and struggles. If we really believe this, that Christ is risen and reigning, then we have all the hope we need to motivate us. It is this that Jesus that Paul preaches in his gospel. It is this Jesus that Paul endures suffering for. So I always have to ask myself, why am I always so timid when it comes to speaking about Christ or living faithfully for him? Maybe it's because we don't want to face the disgrace that this world offers us. We don't want to suffer for the gospel. I know that's often the case for me. But we have an example here in Paul and in Timothy this did not slow him down. Remember, Paul's writing this letter during his second imprisonment in Rome. He's awaiting execution at the hands of the ruthless Roman emperor Nero. And he goes on here to say that it is on behalf of the gospel that he is suffering to the point of being bound in chains like a criminal. And Paul reminds us of his chains. He has not forgotten them. He's imprisoned, but Paul knew what it would cost him to preach the gospel. But he did it anyway, and he knew what it would cost his beloved child, Timothy, to preach the gospel. But he tells Timothy, remember Jesus Christ. Those three words will sustain us in our deepest and most difficult times of trial. But even though Paul was bound by chains, he says the word of God is not bound. 
I cannot th help but think of another example other than Martin Luther. Christina knows that I quote him in almost every sermon at this point. He says this, echoing the words of Paul. What is Luther? The teaching is not mine, nor was I crucified for anyone. How did I, poor stinking bag of maggots that I am, come to the point where people call the children of Christ by my evil name? I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. While I swept, slept and drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amador, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses on it. I did nothing. The word did everything. And if anyone knows about anything about the life of Luther, he struggled immensely. Persecuted by every power, government, religion, you name it, they were out for him. But Luther, like Paul, knew that it was the word of God that accomplished the work of God amongst the people of God. And the same is true today. The word is all we need, and the word is all that I have to offer you. Nobody cares about Wesley's words. Nobody cares about Aaron's words. You can tell them I said that. They can do nothing for you. Only the word of God, faithfully expounded, can hold any hope to strengthen the weary Christian. But in light of that, Paul moves on from his bonds, his suffering for Christ, to his burden, which is salvation in Christ. In light of all that, he says, Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now, when Paul says, I endure everything, he is not over-exaggerating. From the very beginning of Paul's ministry, it was clear what he would go through. Here's what God said to Ananias in Acts right before Paul was called. He says, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Or in 2 Corinthians, when Paul recounts all his suffering, Bearing in mind, this is still early in his ministry. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes less one. 40 lashes because 40 would theoretically kill you, so you just get 39, just so you're just, just barely there. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Oh, and apart from all of that, there's also the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul could rightfully say, I endure everything. But what was the point of it all? He says it was for the sake of who? The elect. Paul's burden was to see the lost saved to see the elect of God called out from the kingdom of darkness and into his glorious light. Paul suffered because he knew that it was well worth it. 
He suffered not only knowing that he would one day receive a glorious reward for it, but more importantly, so would all of God's people. God's chosen people would one day reign with him in eternal glory. And for that reason, Paul gladly suffered and endured. And Paul really drives the point home with one final trustworthy saying, he calls it. One last poetic hymn to help him remember to endure. The saying kind of breaks down into two parts that I've, I've laid out in the outline here. There's steadfast rewards and sobering reminders for those who do not endure. First he writes, If we have died with him, we will also live with him. And if we endure with him, we will also reign with him. Just like before, Paul's focusing on the believer's participation with Christ in his death and resurrection and reign. First, we see that reward of resurrection with Christ. And notice the past tense. If we have died with him. Paul's not necessarily speaking of martyrdom. He's speaking of our union with Christ in his death on the cross. As followers, we are united to Christ in his death in a very real and unique way. As Paul says in Romans, if we have been united with him in his death, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Brothers and sisters, to be united to Christ in his death is to also be united with him in his resurrection. To share in his suffering is to share in his glory. If we endure, past tense, then we will reign, future tense. The present tense here in the second part, mixing stuff up, my apologies. If we endure, present tense, we will reign, future tense. But the present tense here is important because Paul is calling for continual lifetime obedience, endurance, finishing the fight, running the race to the very end. Just like my example with my blunder in high school. If we just give up in the end, we won't finish the fight. To reap the rewards of faithfulness, we must die to ourselves so that we may live and endure suffering so that we may reign with him. However, Paul concludes with some sobering reminders for us. First, he says, if we deny him, he also will deny us. Again, Paul's trying to bolster Timothy's resolve by reminding him to not renounce Christ. Because if he does, Christ will renounce him as well. Paul's echoing the very words of Jesus himself when he says, Whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. But what does this look like for us? You know, the other day when I was talking with my coworker and I had an opportunity to share Christ with them, but I got a little nervous and, and backed out, is that what he's talking about? No, again, remember the pictures of the men that he's shown so far. Those who abandon the mission. Those who go to seek and live lives that are dishonoring to Christ simply because it's too hard to be a Christian. 
He closes, though, with one last sobering reminder. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. I think it's important for us to establish, though, what Paul means by faithless here. Again, I don't think this is talking about the faltering faith of a weary Christian. I believe, help my unbelief. That's not what he has in view here. When he uses this word faithless, it's literally no faith. He is talking about Phygelus and Hermogenes, Hymenaeus and Philetus, Demas and Alexander the coppersmith. Faithless here is running parallel to those who deny Christ. Those who failed to endure and remain faithful to Paul's gospel. Those who are ashamed of Christ and of Paul, his prisoner. But Paul is saying, even if we are faithless, God isn't. God cannot act contrary to his eternal and unchanging character. Paul understands this and he wants Timothy to as well. Andreas Kostenberger, I think, says it so well. He says, Paul draws comfort from the fact that God is sovereign and faithful at a time when he is confined to prison, deserted by all but his closest and dearest friends. Paul knows that he can find comfort in the character of God his sovereignty and faithfulness, no matter what happens with those around him. Does the faithlessness of Phygelus and Hermogenes and Hymenaeus and Philetus and Demas and Alexander nullify the faithfulness of God? No. Let God be true, though the whole world were a liar. Paul takes comfort in that, and so we can take comfort in that as well. But it sobers us. It reminds us to stay faithful. When we see others walking away from the gospel, how do we respond to that? Well, I expected it. Or is it a, Lord, let it never be so. Help me to stay faithful. In reading 2 Timothy, I found myself wondering, and maybe you are this morning, well, how did Timothy respond to this? Did he join the ranks of all these other men? Did he read Paul's letter and say, whoa, I did not sign up for this. This is a little bit too much for me, Paul. I'm sorry. Fortunately, we do get a glimpse of how his story goes. And I'm hoping this morning that it will, again, strengthen and bolster your own resolve to live faithfully for Christ. First, we'll go to the Bible, and then I have a non-Bible source. First, in Hebrews, which I think is written after 2 Timothy, we are told that Timothy was being released from prison. So scripture at least attests to the fact that Timothy was faithful enough that he was imprisoned for the gospel. But to really hammer it home, listen to what is recorded in Fox's Book of Martyrs, which is kind of a book that traces the history of persecution against the church, all the way back from the apostles through the Reformation era. It is said that Timothy would zealously govern the church of Ephesus, so the church he's at when Paul's writing here, for another 30 years 
until the pagans of the city would one day celebrate a feast to the goddess Diana. And Timothy would meet the procession in the streets and reprove them and correct them for their ridiculous idolatry. And you can imagine that they were not pleased with this. It goes on to say that the crowds were so exasperated at his preaching that they fell upon him with clubs and beat him so dreadfully that he expired of the bruises in the streets two days later. So there it is. Timothy, strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, would go on to share in Paul's suffering. As a soldier with single-minded devotion, he would go on to please his king and captain, Jesus Christ. As an athlete, he would live with integrity, obeying the commandments of Christ in the face of pagan idolatry all throughout the city he lived. And as a farmer, he would faithfully labor for a crop in the same church for 30 years. That, that one right there hits me. Timothy, we don't have any writings from Timothy anywhere in the history of the church, but what we do have is the fact that he labored faithfully in a church for 30 years. Having died with Christ, he now lives with him. Having endured, he now reigns with Christ. He would not deny Christ. He was faithful unto death. And so what about us? What will we do in response to Paul's commands here in, Timothy, in 2 Timothy? Will we seek to leave the proclamation to the professionals? Or will we take Paul's words to heart and endure suffering? Will we stay on mission and please our captain like the soldiers that we are? Will we compete for the crown with integrity like the athlete? And will we labor hard for a crop like the farmer? Will we remain faithful to Paul's gospel or will we, we deny Christ? In the face of persecution, will we show ourselves faithless like Hymenaeus and Philetus? Will we show that we are in love with the world like Demas? Or will we show ourselves faithful like Paul and Timothy and Onesiphorus? When all else fails, I pray this, that you will remember Jesus Christ. That is the very key to endure all these things. That is the strength to finish faithfully. So brothers and sisters, let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would strengthen us by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Or that by your spirit, you would strengthen us to be faithful. Or that we would share in the suffering of Paul and of Timothy having been united to Christ in his death. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to remember Jesus Christ. Lord, that even after death he would be risen from the dead. Lord, that now he reigns and rules over all things. Help us to live a life of single-minded faithfulness to him.
Help us to live a life honoring to him. Help us to endure. And in all these things, we pray that you would remind us that your word is not bound. May it comfort us this morning through your spirit. In your son's name we pray. Amen.